parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The ancient Romans had among the many gods they worshipped a god named Janus, Janus Bifrons, that is Janus the two-faced, not, you understand, on account of any duplicity or unreliability on his part, not that at all, but because quite literally he had two faces, a bit like when at Halloween you pop that mask on the back of your head and appear to be looking in two directions at the same time. Janus looked in two directions, forward and backward. Many believe that January is named after him, though in fact this god, who looked backwards into the year now past and into the year ahead, as all of us tend to in January, was actually celebrated by the Romans all year round at every festival as a primordial deity, since every festival, every festive human gathering is an occasion on which to look forward and backward at the same time. Janus was one of the most invoked gods of the whole of the Roman pantheon. And although we have long left behind the polytheism of our primitive ancestors, nonetheless this Roman god captures something essential and eternal about us, as true of us as of the ancient Romans, that we are people always looking forward and backward at the same time. Perhaps that's a luxury in this mad, modern, globalized, helter-skelter world, a world inconceivable, unimaginable to the ancients, in which, thanks to our supposed advances in travel, in communications, in global connection, and our tireless inventiveness, and given that our energies are finite, most of our energy should surely be taken up with looking at what is coming towards us down the line from the future. Surely you might think we have enough to be worrying about in terms of global pandemics, the reconfiguring of world power, growing populism, splintering nationalism, our apparent comfort with huge disparity in the distribution of wealth around the world, and heretofore our unwitting degradation of the environment. Surely you might think there is more than enough here to keep even the finest minds fully occupied with looking straight ahead at the challenges of tomorrow. But the odd thing, it seems to me, is that even as our view of an increasingly complex future becomes more and more preoccupying, so we seem to be spending increasing time obsessing about the past. Do we really, at such a time as this, have the spare capacity to be agonizing over perceived wrongs which are centuries old, and as a result to be sanitizing our public spaces of any statue or image or named public building that might link us with it? Well, apparently we do. At a time when you might imagine that the future and its challenges were more than enough to keep us occupied, and that our finite energies might be usefully expended building for the future, we seem to be finding more and more time 
to obsess about the past too, in an increasing preoccupation with where we have come from. Now, it was George Santayana who sagely observed that those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. But in the 20th and now the 21st centuries, we have turned our proper attention to the past into something of an obsession. And let me give you two examples beyond the current fashionable fascination with the wrongs of slavery, which, let me say, just to be clear, was a great wrong. First, in the West, we seem genuinely to believe now that the only way to flourish in the present is to go into therapy so that we can understand the present by understanding where we have come from. And again, don't get me wrong, in the right context, the gentle process of opening up the past and noticing its impact can be liberating and transformative for some. But we have turned a skill and a gift into an industry and an obsession. And second, in a bizarre parallel development, we have created in the ether thanks to the current and archived electronic record of ourselves in the pages of social media and the internet, a tool that forgets nothing, ever. Any person now applying for a job will have his or her online history checked by any reliable employer. Of course they will. But in the process, things will be taken out of context, which so often distorts, but also those things and occasions which we would rather forget and would do so, except that the internet will not allow us to, will be poured over and sniggered at. Maybe even those childish moments of yesteryear which make us blush. It isn't just that we are obsessed with history. We seem to be creating a world in which remembering, recalling, obsessing over what was, blaming the past for what was, and electronically impeding any possibility of forgetfulness or forgiveness is the norm, even as new challenges run at us from the future. Caught as we are in this pressure cooker place of modern life, it is no wonder, perhaps, that reported stress, occasions of mental illness, and the incidence of depression are at record levels in Western society. What a place we have created for ourselves. That the ancient Jewish scriptures might have some wisdom and light to cast upon these our days may seem, on the face of it, surprising. What could writers who knew none of what we face possibly have to say that might be of even the slightest use. Surely, we think to ourselves, these ancient ruminations are as irrelevant to the modern world as the Roman pantheon of gods. But it seems to me that that first passage we heard read today from Ezekiel 18 speaks entirely to our condition. It begins with an ancient proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. If that seems a bit abstruse or opaque, 
the context may help a bit. These words are spoken to the people of God who are in exile in Babylon after the cataclysmic events of the 580s before the common era of the 6th century. The people subjugated were carried off into captivity where you will remember the psalmist penned those poignant words, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And as they languished, they recalled still more ancient teachings in the book of Exodus, in which it said if they sinned, God would vent his anger not just on those who sinned, but on their children and on their children's children to the second and the third generation. A prospect and a threat distilled in that ancient proverb, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And in Babylon, hopelessness set in. This is all to do with the past, they said. We are paying for the sins and the failures of others. Our life is now irredeemably being shaped by the squalid history of our parents and our grandparents. Doesn't it always feel great to dare to say that? No, it's not my fault, it's theirs. Blame and abdicate responsibility for doing anything other than merely enduring, after all, if it's payback time, what is to be done? And, of course, that, unless we are very careful, is where any fatalistic obsession with the past can leave us. Not my fault. Not a lot I can do. I'm the product of what came before. Those challenges are not of my making. My childhood, my home, the education and the opportunities I had or didn't have, the choices that they helped me make that set me on my course. And from that sort of retrospective thinking, it's a gentle slide only into fatalistic resignation. I'm a product of what I was, what was then, and there is no escape. And we do need to notice, of course, that social forces are strong, and it is really hard for some people to escape the incarceration of intergenerational determinism, the shackles of poverty or the lack of opportunity which binds so tightly. And yes, even for those more fortunate, some experiences do limit as do past choices we may have made, of course. And there is some truth that we hand on to those ahead of us many things. But the point being made in Ezekiel chapter 18 is that if for a moment we believe that this is part of the inevitable deep structure of life, or that if we think that in some way this is the way God has shaped and designed the world to be, well, that is simply wrong. The reason this part of Ezekiel's prophecy is such an important, indeed such a revolutionary piece of early theology is because, the writer says, 
All that stuff about intergenerational payback, it's rubbish, it's nonsense. Indeed, it is abhorrent to God. And so in the voice of God, the writer says, no longer shall you say these words. That is, no longer should you language in this fatalistic gloom, believing that somehow what you're going through is nothing to do with you, but is the legacy of the past. Rather, God's will is not to punish, but is to see people seize life. Whatever has happened before, God's desire is to see new things and to give a new heart and a new spirit. God, whatever the ancient assumptions of Exodus might suggest, is the God of new things and new life. Behold, God says in the words of Deuteroisaiah, penned at exactly the same time as the 18th chapter of Ezekiel, though in another country and by another hand, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not see it? This theology is revolutionary. Why? Because it is an affirmation of human agency. It says that however much we may feel ourselves to be caught up in what man hands on to man, that deepening coastal shelf of misery that they until that point had believed inevitable and unavoidable and which we, espousing fashionable gloom in the 21st century, seem also readily to believe in, that however much we may fall into believing that we are caught up and determined by what has gone before us, we are not. And God's desire is to see us create new things and to know liberation, to repent, that is to set that view behind us and to enter into new life. And isn't that precisely the message of Jesus to the Jewish leaders in the temple in the gospel we heard just now? That the mire and sin that they imagine clings, and by contrast that the authority they believe comes from the past, is all an illusion. And that it is those who do the work of God, whatever the past has said to them or about them that will come into God's kingdom and will know that fullness of life that is in Christ Jesus. This view of God's purpose for our lives is as revolutionary as it is relevant to us today. And here's the exam question. To what extent are you trapped by past events, feeling that you are held in thrall by things that happened long ago, or worse still, feeling that you are still paying the price for decisions and events that somehow you cannot forget or forgive? Hear this. This new day and this new week is God's new gift to you. God, who sustains and feeds you here, 
not to languish in the past, but for new life. And if you will, God will put a new heart in you. And just look around. Just think what transformation we together might unleash this coming week if instead of looking anxiously forward or gloomily backwards, languishing in what we feel is impossible and inevitable, we were this week to seize the opportunities God wills for us. God says, no longer will you repeat this proverb, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Turn then and live. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.